Good morning, church. It is the end of March. That means that college students and high school students are wrapping up studies. This is a big season of change. If you're a student, especially if you're going to be a graduate, this is recommendation letter season. How many of you have asked somebody ever for a letter of recommendation? A lot of people. Whether it's to get into a school or to get a scholarship or to get a job, when you ask for a letter of recommendation, you're combing through your social file asking, who's the most trustworthy, impressive person that I can get to speak for me, to give me access into this new thing that I want? Whether it's a job or getting into school or having somebody help pay for the school that you're going to get into, letters of recommendation are flowing right now. I've asked for them myself, and I keep a little file of recommendation letters that I've sent on behalf of others in my computer so that when this season eventually comes around again, I can reach into the file and promptly respond to any request for recommendation letters. So there you go. I just made an offer, I think. If you need anything, <laughs> as, they, as the old corny joke says, my letter and five bucks will get you a decent cup of coffee <laughs> most places. It's recommendation letters that Paul is going to begin talking to us about when we return to his letter in 2 Corinthians. If you're here for the first time, I was explaining this to a first-time guest, we're joining Paul in the middle of a letter that he wrote to a church in ancient Corinth, modern-day Greece, that had really, really, really hurt Paul. The Corinthians were legendary for their immorality, and Paul had brought the saving message of Jesus to unlikely people. He had been, of course, an ultra-Orthodox Jew, a Pharisee, in fact, one of the most well-regarded experts in the Mosaic law of his day, a Jew of Jews, a student of students, a leader of leaders in that world who disbelieved the Jesus story with his whole heart. He didn't disbelieve it. He hated it. He thought it was a hoax until he met Jesus for himself, and then everything changed for Paul. He became the, big, the biggest, boldest preacher that Jesus has had probably to the present day. That's how he ended up in Corinth. He had brought the message of Jesus to these people that Jesus had died for their sins as well, that they didn't have to keep the Mosaic law as he had tried to. No one has ever succeeded in keeping the law of God. It's perfect and righteous and we're fallible and sinful. We fall short every time. Paul had explained all that. They had been seemingly, many of them had turned to Christ and then religious teachers started filtering in saying, no, you need to return to Judaism. You need to embrace the law. You need to keep kosher. If you haven't been circumcised, you should be. So between their Greco-Roman pagan influences and old habits and Judaizing teachers, that's the technical term, a Judaizer, someone who's trying to pull a convert into the practice and the observance of the Mosaic law, Paul really had his hands full and a significant portion of this church had turned on Paul, characterizing him as a false teacher, maybe even a grifter, a dishonest man who was profiting off the message he was preaching. That's 2 Corinthians. And Paul's going to begin talking about letters of recommendation by a way of laying open his life and his credentials to show them, once again, what they never should have doubted, that Paul's real. He's legit. He's authentic. He's not a phony. 
that their faith is real, and their faith is real because Paul legitimately told them the truth about Jesus. That's where the recommendation letters come in when we get started reading. But see, the whole point of a letter of recommendation is when you ask for one, you're asking to borrow somebody else's credibility. That's really what it gets down to. You're appealing to somebody who doesn't know you at all or doesn't know you very well, and you're appealing to someone with some credibility in that field to say, this guy, this gal right here, they're dependable. They show up on time. They work hard. They're honest. They won't disappoint you. You're trying to trade on somebody else's expertise and credibility. And it's a good thing to do. And I asked the 8 a.m. service if maybe it was a little too early to talk about such heavy topics, but here's the heart of what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians. Let me just tell you the problem and the question that he's wrestling with so that you can see it run through the whole text. The question is this, how do you know that your Christian life is real? You ever doubt it? You ever show up at church and maybe even the middle of the songs or even the middle of my sermon, you go, is this real to me? Is this factual? Because the pastor's talking about life and death and heaven and hell and life everlasting and that when I die here, I live somewhere else forever. Is that real for me? You ever ask yourself that? Paul's going to tell you, I'll show you before we're done, that you absolutely should. You should be absolutely certain that your faith is real. The Christian faith is not a private faith. The life of Jesus, more about this on Easter Sunday, was lived in public for open examination by anybody, people who loved him and people who hated him. His life was open for inspection by all. He said and did everything in public so that everyone could inspect and scrutinize his life. And his open public claim is that he alone can save people from their sins. And with the claim that bold, you should be sure that you've made a decision one way or the other. And if you believe that you're a Christian, you should be quite certain that your Christian life is real. Because there's a lot of reasons to convince yourself that it is when it really isn't. It may be more your upbringing. It may be the Christian subculture that we live in. It may just be some kind of cultural inertia that you got into some habits of doing some things that pertain to the Christian faith, and really what you've adopted is not Christ, but a set of Christian values. And they're good values, but they won't save you. Only Jesus himself can do that. And Paul's argument, I'm telling you the point of his chapter before we even read it, Paul's argument to the Thessalonians, beginning with this idea of being recommended, is this. A life transformed by Christ is the proof that you know Him. The way to be certain that you actually know Jesus is not your creed and your confession, and true as real as that may be, because anybody can say words. The ultimate proof of a life that really knows Christ is a life that has been and is being transformed by Christ. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You'll see what I mean. Paul says in verse 1, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? 
Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Look how personal it gets. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul's already setting up his defense. His critics, the people who either preceded him or followed him or both, were always recommending their expertise and their closeness to God. And Paul is asking a very blunt question. Are we the kind of person who need letters of recommendation? Do you need to vouch for us? Do you need to vouch? Do we need to vouch for you? No. The letter of recommendation that we have, he says, is your own life. Verse 2, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Get yourself a spiritual leader who will carry you in his heart. Paul says, you've turned your back on me, you've always been on my heart, and I see that Jesus is writing a different story in your life. Verse 3, you show that you are a letter from Christ, Jesus is writing a whole new story on their hearts, and Paul says, our part is, you were delivered by us. That letter from Christ is written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. A life transformed by Christ is the proof that you know Him. So, right at the front side, if you are evaluating and asking yourself the serious question of whether you're really a Christian, you can begin with Paul's word picture. What kind of story is being written? Can you see a point where Jesus came in and rerouted your life? Began to write a whole new story? There are some people here who are undeniably, because the change was so dramatic, I could introduce you to them, I can see the, some of them from here, I won't name them because it's embarrassing, but I can point to men and women in this room saying, now, this guy, this woman right here, wow, did they have a change. Their story, the story they were writing was dark, it was headed straight into death, but Jesus came in and wrote on their hearts a whole new chapter, a whole new story with a very different outcome. Those people, generally speaking, can take great confidence because they remember how much they were saved from. They can see a very stark difference. But that's not everybody's story. It's not mine. I was raised in a Christian home. I heard the name and the message of Jesus from an early age. But for every single one of us, the proof is the turning point where you can look back at a time in history where God began to write because somebody else had the love and the courage to talk to you about Jesus. That message came in and God began to write a whole new story in your life. In the case of those of us who were, didn't have those dramatic turns around, uh, uh, didn't have a dramatic turn around, the story is not as dramatic, but the outcome is 
because there is a gradual day by day, year by year, looked at over a long period of time, you can see all that you were saved from, and you can see your character and your life and your choices and your entertainments and your values and your desires being changed to be more and more like Jesus, less and less like the world's, less and less like the person you were or the person you would have been. Every single one of us should take Paul seriously when he tells us, I'll show you in a moment, examine yourself and make sure that you're in the faith. These first few verses tell us a little bit about the kind of life transformation that Jesus produces. First of all, it's real. Secondly, it's visible. It's open for public inspection just the way the life of Jesus was and we don't take any credit for it. A life transformed by Christ means that it's God at work. Look in verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Notice Paul said, follow the word picture. I didn't write the story. Jesus wrote the letter. I just delivered it. We're just messengers. We're just delivery people. We're not producing the message. We're just delivering the message. We're not writing the story. We're just reading it and announcing it to the world, what Jesus did for us and what he's now doing it in you. The very facts of Christianity humble anybody who take it seriously. And if you're a proud Christian, you're a contradiction in terms. And there's a lot of those circulating right now. Men and women who name the name of Christ and are so obviously full of themselves and so self-assured and self-confident that Jesus has been pushed to the margins. Paul's saying just the opposite of that. Verse 4, not that we have, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. It's God that's writing this story. If you can point to your own turnaround, if you can look in the book of your life and see two distinct seasons, before Jesus and after Jesus, B.C. and A.D. in your own life, that is ample biblical proof that Jesus for you is real because it's real, it's visible, and it's evidence that God is at work. And then in what follows, it's going to get really Jewish. Paul himself, remember, is an ultra-Orthodox former Pharisee, a leader of leaders, a teacher of teachers, the most well-regarded practitioner of Pharisaical Judaism in the first century. He lays out his own credentials elsewhere, and they are impeccable. If Paul were presenting his credentials in the modern world, he would have gone to the Ivy League or a military academy and graduated at the top of his class and went on to a career that astonished everyone. Paul, in terms of the observance of the law of Moses, buried also under the heavy traditions of the Pharisees, Paul had no equal. And because Paul is always preceded or followed by religious competitors, 
who are going to take the message of Jesus and agree with it in part and not deny Jesus, but say, listen, it's really good that you've begun with Christ, but what about the law? God gave the law. God gave the law to Moses, the greatest of our prophets and leaders, the man who formed our nation truly under the governance of God, who gave us the very covenant of God. What about him? Surely you want to do what God commanded. That's the temptation, that's the criticism that the Corinthians are hearing. So now Paul is going, talking to these Gentiles, is going to put his Jewish hat back on and teach. Verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. And that's a big departure because the Corinthians are being told, you need to return to the old covenant. God made old promises, ancient promises that should be honored now, and Paul said no. When we arrive, Jesus started writing a new letter and a whole new story in your lives, and that's not our doing. We are sufficient in God, and verse 6, God made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Just going to read this straight through to you and then come back and explain it. He has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, he's referring to the law and the covenant of Moses, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since then we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. How many of you got lost in that story? The reason is this, if that seemed distant and far away from you, there's a good reason for it. It is. That's a long, long time ago in your Bible. It's a long, long time ago in history. What Paul is reminding them here, drawing on all of his knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, Paul is reminding them of Moses' relationship with God in Exodus chapter 32, 33, and 34. God famously wrote the most expressive, memorable part of his law on stone tablets. We call those the Ten Commandments. And how did it go with the Ten Commandments? Israel kept saying, we will do everything God commands, but by the time Moses came down off Mount Sinai with the first copy of the Ten Commandments, they were already in the worst kind of idolatry. Do you remember what Moses did with the first? He smashed them in anger. How embarrassing for everybody involved. <laughs> I found your people, God, living like 
pagans at the bottom of the mountain. I got so mad that I broke what you gave me. Can I please have another copy? <laughs> and if you read Exodus chapter 2, uh, Exodus 32 through 34, you're going to find that Moses himself serves as a mediator between God and the people. Moses is going into the presence of God to hear God's law, and when he returns, his face physically shines. It's one of the miracles of the Old Testament. Moses' countenance, his face shines with the radiance of the glory of God. It was so unsettling, so hard for the Israelites to look at that Moses developed a habit of going into God's presence with an open, bare face, but putting a veil over his own face when he went back to tell Israel what God had said. The sight of his face must have terrified them. It reminded them of the holiness of God. It reminded them of the distance between the righteousness of God and their own very obvious wickedness and frailty. Moses was continually moving between those two worlds, barefaced, open, transparent in the presence of God, and then returning with a veiled face to the people of Israel. And, Mo, and Paul here, who knew the Old Covenant far better than these Gentile Corinthians ever could, is contrasting the two covenants. Here's what he says about them. The Old Covenant, Paul says, kills. The New Covenant, on the other hand, gives life. The Old Covenant, because it was the word and the expression of God's law and righteousness, was glorious, but the New Covenant is even more glorious. The Old Covenant was only temporary. The New Covenant is permanent, most striking of all. Just as the Old Covenant kills and the New Covenant gives life, the Old Covenant condemns and the New Covenant gives righteousness. Let me explain to you, God, Paul is never critical of God's law. He never condemns it and he never rejects it. He just says something that every spiritually minded and religious person in the world needs to hear. Paul says it cannot save you. It can only show you where you're wrong. Romans, he explicitly says that the effect that the law of God has on people is it shuts our mouths and it shows us we're guilty. That's what the state trooper does. It's what the CHP does when they pull you over and remind you of the sign that you passed that said 65 and show you on the radar that you were doing 85. There's nothing you can say. The law is posted, the radar records your law breaking. There's nothing to say, it's just a sign here kind of situation. Now what do people do with the law of God? They either self-righteously believe that they can keep it all themselves, they become like Paul, or they refashion the law of God into a spirituality or into a religion of their own making. And every single person in human history, and always will be, will have a spiritual impulse. Even those demonstrably, we know from surveys, even people who claim not to believe in God admit to praying. Because the Bible says that God has put eternity in our hearts and given sufficient pressure, and given sufficient danger, and given sometimes sufficient reflection, every single person made by God in His image will reach out to Him, even if they do it according to their own understanding and miss God by a mile. 
Paul here is not condemning the law of Moses. He's just saying that old covenant never could save you. It was never intended to save you. All the law could do is show you your great need of a Savior. If the standard is this high, the law will show you that you need not to do better, but you need to some, for someone to come in as your substitute and do it for you. That's the very message of the gospel. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, read this with me, please. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. This is a very famous passage. Let's go through it a little more slowly. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation, not a reformed creation, not an improved creation. You're a whole new creature. The old, your old life, has passed away. Now God's writing a new story. Look, the new has come, and none of this is to your credit. No, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. That's the gospel announcement. But the Corinthians are hearing a temptation and a pressure to become religious, to become Judaizers, and this is as real and as practical now in our church that temptation has always existed for Christians, and it always will. In our own church, we've had people we dearly love influenced by a religious movement called Hebrew Roots who walked away very visibly and notably from their Christian faith and adopted the Jewish law as their sincere, best-hearted intention to do what they think God has commanded. This religious impulse of I will do it myself exists in every human heart. That's why Paul is continually saying regarding his own salvation, regarding his ministry, and regarding the way God saves everybody, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Notice God's doing all the work and God gets all the credit. We're not participating in our own rescue. We are dead in our sins and we're being rescued by God. So Paul now explains from his own position as a former devout practitioner of Judaism, Paul now explains what's happening with the Israelites. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. What's going on with these Judaizing teachers? What's going on with Paul's family, who he says in Romans he's heartbroken for every single day? Paul reflects on his own testimony and his own life. And he says what's happening to the Israelites is this, hardened hearts keep them from turning to Christ to be free. When they hear the law of Moses, a veil remains over their heart. They cannot see Jesus in it. And you may never be drawn into Hebrew or Hebrew roots movements, but here's the spiritual principle that carries across all of human history. Self-righteousness will always keep you from true righteousness. 
If you insist in Paul's words on having a righteousness of your own, you will never have the righteousness of Christ. Jesus doesn't have partners. It's not that He does His part and you do yours. No, it's that you declare yourself someone in need of His life, His salvation, His forgiveness, His lordship, and He comes in and does it all. And Paul says that what that brings is freedom. And what that brings is openness. And what that brings is a transformation of life. Look in verse 16. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Notice the difference for Christians. Here's the relationship that Jesus offers with the Father. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So please be sure of your faith. Because when you turn to Christ, the veil falls away. And like Moses, in the presence of God, you can have an open relationship with God that is face-to-face. No veils, no barriers. You are welcome in His presence. You are loved in His presence. You are secure there. In His amazing, awe-inspiring holiness, you are now safe because you belong to Him. The burden of this chapter and the burden of this message and what you need to be asking yourself is whether your life reaches this standard, not from your achievement, but from what Jesus has done for you. A life that looks like Jesus is the real proof that you know Jesus. And let's take a few minutes before I'm done to see whether you can examine yourself humbly before God. It'll just be you and Him. You don't answer to me. You won't take anybody with you when you answer to God. Just examine yourself to see, as Paul says, and I'm going to show you whether you're in the faith. See, it's it's a little heavy on a Sunday morning, but it's necessary. I'm concerned that a lot of Christians who believe they're Christians are actually just living a lifestyle of Christian habits or have grown up in this little part of the Bible Belt. Did you know that California actually is a bit of a Bible Belt itself? It took me many years to realize this, because when I think Bible Belt, I think of where my family is from, places like Texas, Tennessee. We've got our own little West Coast Bible Belt right here. There's four Christian churches within two miles on this street alone. Two miles from here in a movie theater, a really well-made movie is chronicling the explosion of the Calvary Chapel movement, first in Southern California and then all across the world. It's easy, in other words, to buy into a Christian subculture, to hang around with Christians, to learn Christian lingo, learn Christian songs, buy a study Bible, show up at the right places at the right times and think that you're in. And Paul says that has nothing to do with it. Cultures are far too easy to adopt. Habits are actually not that hard to change. The proof is whether you have a life that looks like Jesus, because if Jesus has saved you, here's what's going to be happening. Verse 18, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
If your story was dramatic, you already know it, but if it wasn't, Paul says you will still have a gradual progression as you behold Jesus, you will, becoming, you will be becoming more and more like him. This answers the so what of this sermon. Because if we don't deal with the so what, you're going to think, well, that was marginally interesting as a bunch of ancient history, but I'm not really sure what that has to do with me. Some of you were wondering, weren't you? You should always ask yourself, and a good Bible teacher will always try to show you the so what. Because there's some value, but not much life change in learning historical facts about other Christians who lived long ago far away. Because this is the actual living Word of God that speaks to all the people that God will ever make, there's always a so what for us. And here's the so what from this passage for us this morning. First of all, we should evaluate. We should evaluate, first of all, our own lives. That's what matters most, and that's not my idea, that's Paul's idea. Listen, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Notice, we're in the same letter, now he's at the end. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Paul's open challenge to them is make sure that Jesus is writing a new story. Make sure that Christ is actually in you, that you've been joined to his life, that his life is replacing your old sinful life, which is headed straight into condemnation. Make sure, unless you fail to meet the test. Be sure of that. Make sure you haven't adopted a subculture. Make sure you're not doing it because your parents have taught you to do it. Make sure you're not acting like a Christian because of positive peer pressure and you're afraid of disappointing someone. That will be a small, pale thing to tell God on Judgment Day. I did it because everybody else around me was doing it. No, make sure that you are in the faith. Make sure that Jesus Christ is in you. We should not only evaluate our own lives, we should also evaluate our influencers and our leaders. Paul says to the Corinthians, you're written on my heart. I carry you with me every day. Make sure that you have spiritual leaders like that in this church, beginning with the pastors and continuing to your Bible study leaders and your group leaders, your disciples people who have a spiritual influence on you, make sure that they're real. And in the age of influence, make sure that whoever's influencing you in the name of Christ is actually a Christian and that their lives show that they're a Christian. It's so easy now with enough money to build a platform in Christian, in Christian culture in the United States. Anybody can have a bestseller. Some Christian authors have been exposed by having fake bestsellers. They write the book, they pay a company a bunch of money, and they simulate retail sales all around the country. So the New York Times bestsellers list is deceived as this guy wrote a bestseller. No, he didn't. He just had kind people buy a bunch of books at once. It's so easy to fake it. Anybody can look good in a soundbite. Anybody can look good on Instagram. Anybody can write a book, anybody can have a conference, anybody given enough personal charisma and drive can have some kind of a following. 
I would tell you, based on 2 Corinthians chapter 3, make sure that you evaluate your leaders and whoever else you allow through the internet, through books, through conferences to influence you. Make sure that their lives are legit and show that they themselves are growing in likeness of Christ. Not only that, here's a second so what. According to Paul, we should be bold. We should be bold for Jesus. Look at verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. None of this should feel like a burden because Jesus paid the whole burden. He's carrying all the weight. The burden and the test for you is to make sure that you've actually turned from sin and trusted Him. If you have, He does everything. From beginning to end, it's all grace, it's all Christ, it's all Jesus. That's why Paul says we are very bold in Him. And finally, because Paul says we have this relationship with an open, unveiled face, in which, verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. We should be changing, in other words, to become more like Jesus, because, church, we become what we behold. Paul says to these ungrateful, undeserving baby Christians, you're actually standing in Moses' place now. Moses would go into the presence of God with an unveiled face and enjoy for himself the presence of God. So do all of us now. Immoral, immature, backbiting and backstabbing as you are, those of you who are really Christians have this great privilege. You can walk in and behold God in Christ. Whatever you are continually beholding, that's what you're going to be becoming. And that's why the screens are so toxic, and that's why the distractions of our age fight so strongly against us ever becoming the strong Christians that Christ intended because there's so many things that are calling out to us saying, pay attention to me. You have access to God now. You can go to Him with confidence. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You can go to God by yourself, for yourself, and know that there you will be accepted and loved. We become what we behold, and this is the kind of life that God produces. The ordinary Christian life is the fruit of the Spirit. Read this with me. Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. Read, please. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That is the life that the Spirit produces. If you belong to Jesus, it won't be that you're straining to produce this. It's that Christ in you, as you behold Him with this free, open, transparent relationship that you enjoy with Him along with other Christians, the life of God in you will be producing this fruit, these traits. This is not extraordinary. This is not for super-Christians. This is the kind of life that God produced in the Corinthians and that, Paul, that Christ produced in the Galatians. And if you know the Galatians, they were even worse than the Corinthians. 
This kind of life was open and available and expected and normal for all true Christians. So here's an interesting test. Can you put your name where it says fruit of the Spirit? Would you say, for instance, that you are loving, that you are joyful? Would you say, brother, that you're peaceful? Sister, would you say that you're patient? Would you say that you're kind? Would you say and would others say of you that you are good? Can you honestly, humbly say that you're faithful? How are you doing with gentleness? How is your self-control? Paul, again, responding to the Judaizers with a little bit of a dig at them, says against such things there is no law. Never mind the law, this is the life that God produces. Only Christ himself is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's who he is. But if you have him, you will be growing in all these things. And this beautiful new story that God started writing in your heart, it will more and more say that you're loving and say that you're joyful, and as you behold Jesus, you will be increasingly peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and self-controlled. Is that the life that you find in you? If not, I'm asking you in the name of Jesus to turn to Him and ask Him what went wrong, where you missed Him, and make absolutely sure that you really are a Christian. Church, let's be sure that the life of Christ is in us. Let's pray together. Talking to Christians now and asking you to apply the test that Paul suggested, commanded really in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. Are you sure that Christ is in you? If your life doesn't show it, I'm inviting you to turn to him right now. If you have doubts and worries that maybe it's just been a cultural thing or a family thing or a habitual thing for you, but you do not honestly see that new story being written, the chapter getting better and sweeter as you go, please turn to him right now. If you don't know and you're quite sure that you don't know Jesus in the way that I've been describing, he's inviting. He's welcome. He's open. He's accepting. He's calling. Would you turn to him? Would you give him your life, your sin? Would you turn away from yourself and your own self-imposed religion, your own efforts to save yourself, and would you ask Jesus to do it instead? If you do this morning, or if this has created doubts for you, there's a card in the seat back in front of you. I'd love for all of you to fill it out. If you have a doubt or a question or you've made a spiritual step toward Christ this morning, as best you know how, I can't talk to you individually, but if as best you know how, with the understanding and the faith that Jesus has given you, you're making a move toward him this morning. You're responding to that call. Take the card that's in the seat back pocket. Fill it out. Leave it for us before you leave in one of the boxes or at the hello table and let us know.